You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 11, verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and the stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, found hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that in your word you have given to us everything that pertains to life and to godliness. So we pray that you would incline our hearts to your word, that we may see in your word the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. That in seeing that we may behold him and love him, and that you would fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise. Thank you for the blessing of your word, and we pray that you would send your spirit to help us understand it. Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Well, we come now to the miracle itself. Everything we've talked about up till now is sort of set up the miracle, introduce the miracle, and introduce some of the players. And so we start in verse 38 this morning. Uh, this miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus, is in one sense, in many senses, the crowning miracle of the Gospel of John. It is the seventh of the seven signs in John's Gospel. And in many ways, this is the greatest of all of these miracles. It almost seems as if every miracle in some way builds upon the previous one until you get to John chapter 11, and then you ask yourself, how in the world could this be taught? This is by far one of the greatest miracles in all of the New Testament that Jesus wrought, and it is one of the, the more marvelous ones, and certainly one that had lasting ramifications. We see the results of this miracle taking us all the way into chapter 12 as the Jews begin to plot ways uh, to kill him because of this miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus. So... In John chapter 11, we have looked so far at Jesus coming to Bethany. He has not come into the city yet. Martha went out to meet him. Then Mary went out to meet him. And then he requested that they take him to the place where Lazarus was buried. And we pick it up at verse 37. And we're jumping right in because we have a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to go through the end of verse 44 today. Verses 38 through 44. So verse 38, Jesus then, so Jesus again, sorry, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. That, that phrase, being deeply moved within, is a similar phrase to the one in verse 33, where when he saw the weeping of the Jews and Mary uh, weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. Verse 33 says, deeply moved in spirit. Verse 38, again, being deeply moved within. They're not identical phrases, but they are similar. And as I mentioned last week, that, uh, that word translated deeply moved literally means to snort like a horse. And it has the idea of an indignation or an anger or something inside of him. And it was a deep inward angst over this situation. In some senses, he was, in some sense, he was angry. 
I suggested in verse 33 that he was probably angry because of the loud lamenting and the weeping of Mary coming to the tomb and the other Jews who came with her carrying on and wailing and moaning and bemoaning the death of Lazarus. And that was entirely inappropriate, especially in light of the man in whose presence they were. Carry on like that in the presence of the Lord of life, the resurrection and the life, was completely inappropriate. You don't mourn like somebody who has no hope when in fact you are standing in the very presence of the one who gives you that hope. And so that deeply moved Jesus within. But in verse 38, why was he deeply moved within when he went to the tomb? What was it that caused that inward anger again at this situation? Was it the weeping? I think it was the blasphemous thing that was said in verse 37. Remember from last week, some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Remember the implication of the, the, the implicit the implicit objection behind this statement? If he really loved Lazarus, and he really had the power to heal Lazarus, then can you explain why Lazarus is in the grave? If he had the power to heal Lazarus, and he let Lazarus die, then it's probably because he didn't love Lazarus. And if he loved Lazarus, and he let him die, it's probably because he didn't have the power to heal Lazarus. So the fact that Lazarus is in the tomb either impugns his love for Lazarus, or it impugns his power to heal Lazarus. That type of unbelief is foolish and demonic thinking, and that is what made Jesus angry. That was a slander against his character. And mark this well, friends, when you and I measure God's love for us, or God's ability to intervene or to providentially work out His will in our lives, when we measure that in terms of some ill that has befallen us, that is enough to make God angry. It angers Him. It is to impugn, to impugn His love for us because something bad happens to us. Should I ever measure God's love because of anything that happens in my life? Anything that befalls me in this sin-cursed and fallen world? Am I ever justified in saying, if this has happened to me, how can God really love me? Or am I ever justified in saying, if this has happened to me, how is it that God can be powerful enough to keep this from happening and yet let it happen to me? I am never justified in measuring either God's love or His ability determined based upon what has happened in my life. To do so is worldly thinking, it is demonic thinking, it is fleshly wisdom. It is, in fact, to say that I am in a better place to determine God's will for me and what is best for me than God himself is. And that is fleshly and that is foolish. That, I think, is what angered Jesus. He heard them say, if he loved Lazarus, why is Lazarus dead? And Jesus understood what they were implying. Either he didn't really love Lazarus or he really didn't have the power to heal Lazarus. And that caused him to be deeply moved within. And John says he came to the tomb, verse 38. He came to the tomb, now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And John gives us those details because there were a number of different types of tombs in that day. Sometimes they buried, uh, they buried their dead just by digging a hole in the ground and covering it up with dirt, much like we do today. A lot of people, the, the wealthier people in that region in that time, had uh, caves that they used for their burial plots or their, their sepulchers. And there were two different types of caves. And some people have tried to discern from John's description here, what type of cave it was. There were caves that were hollowed into rock, like a room carved into rock, which was just horizontal. This is the type of tomb that Jesus was buried in, uh, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and they just rolled the, the stone vertically against the opening of the cave. There were other tombs that were like sepulchers dug downward into the ground with steps that went to sort of an underground sepulcher. And in those instances, the, the stone was placed over the mouth of the, the tomb or the grave. Now, some have suggested that John, in verse 38, says that the stone was lying against it, suggesting that the stone was on top of it, and that what we may have here is a sepulcher 
dug into the ground, as it were, into the stone ground with the stone lying up on top of it. I don't know, nobody knows if we can discern what type of grave this was, but we are to understand it was a stone, some sort of a cave made of stone, either natural or hollowed out. But here is something significant. This is another indication that Lazarus and his family may have been a family of some means, because not every uh, bumpkin out in Bethany, the small village outside of Jerusalem, had the means to afford a cave carved into the rock or dug out of the ground. This is probably an indication that this was their family tomb, and so Lazarus and his family were probably a family of some sort of financial means. And we've looked at other indications from the text that would suggest that. Another thing worth noting is that this grave site was outside of Bethany. This is kind of interesting to me. Do you know that the practice of burying the dead among the living is something of, of more modern invention? They didn't do that back in those days because the dead bodies and tombs were associated with ceremonial uncleanness and, uh, and, and ritual uncleanliness. So they would bury the dead outside the city. Jesus hasn't even been into Bethany. Today we put a, a graveyard, a tombstone or a graveyard on one side of the street and a housing development on the other side of the street. They didn't do that back in those days. You had to go out to where the tombs were at. And people didn't, they didn't hobnob and, and sort of drive by the tombs every day on their way to work because of the dead bodies and the corruption and sometimes the smell that would be coming from the graveyard. So that's sort of a modern invention that we do, burying the dead among the living. The Jews didn't do that. It was outside the city entirely. So Jesus came to the tomb, verse 38, verse 39, sorry. Jesus said to them, remove the stone. Remove the what? Do you think that anybody standing here next to him expected him to say that? Nobody did. Remove the, remove the stone. Why in the world would we remove the stone? What possible good can come from removing the stone? You want us to, did we hear him right? Remove the stone? Take the stone off of the, the grave of the opening? Is that what, which stone is he talking? Is he talking about the stone in front of Lazarus' tomb? Is that the stone he's talking about? Because you understand that he has been dead four days. In fact, that's Martha's objection, right? In verse 39, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Does she think that Jesus didn't know that? He knew when Lazarus had died. Was fully aware of that. I love the way the King James phrases it. Lord, by this time, he stinketh. For he has been dead four days. Now, that word stinketh, and I don't know what it is in the Queen's English that makes that sound so much better than the way we say it today, but Lord, by this time, he stinketh. For he has been four days dead. Martha was aware that this was going to put off an aroma that would be unforgettable, being four days dead. It was the stench that she was concerned about. There are people here. And to remove the tone, uh, the stone from the tomb is to unleash the stench for everybody that is here. And to see the body in that state after four days in that warm, hot, dry environment, that really would be dishonoring to Lazarus. And we don't want to dishonor Lazarus. I don't want the last vision that I have of my brother's corpse being that. I would prefer to remember him how he was when we put him in there. In that hot, dry, arid, and I'm not trying to be macabre or, or morbid here at all, but in that hot environment, they buried them the same day that they died, and they would bury them with spices. You remember we read about in Scripture them burying them with spices. What was the purpose of the spices? It was because the Jews didn't embalm their dead like the Egyptians did, so they buried them with all sorts of perfume. The intent of the perfume and the spices was not to delay the decomposition of the body. It was to mask the smell of the decomposition of the body for a period of time until it didn't stink as bad. Uh, it, those rocks sitting over top of tombs were not airtight containers. You understand that. And the intention was to seal off and to mask as much of the smell of the decomposition as possible. Now, why would Jesus ask them to remove the stone? This was curious to me. 
Why would he request that they remove the stone? Isn't it possible for him to simply transport by an act of his will the body from inside the tomb to outside the tomb without rolling away the stone? Did he really need to roll away the stone? He didn't need to do that. Why did he have the stone rolled away? He, he could have done that or simply by an act of his word, by, by a power of his word, he could have levitated the stone from over the mouth of the sepulcher to someplace else. Certainly, if he can raise the dead, he can give life to a dead body, and if he can reverse and undo the decomposition of a corpse, he can certainly levitate a stone and move it out of his way. Why did he involve the people in removing the stone? I think for two reasons. First, and this is speculation, but first, I think that he did this in order to sort of recruit tactile witnesses to the miracle. There would be people there who, when this was being told in Jerusalem later, and we know it was a topic of discussion all the way into chapter 12, there would be people who had been there who would say, oh, I was there that day. I moved the stone. I rolled the stone away from that. It was Lazarus's grave. I touched the stone. I know what was there. Jesus is, in a sense, bringing in, recruiting tactile witnesses to this miracle, people who were there, and they participated in it, and they would talk about it. A second reason, and I don't mean this to sound morbid, I think Jesus wanted people there who smelled that smell. Now, I'll tell you why. Do you remember the response to the reaction of the Jews when Jesus healed the man born blind? Did they believe the miracle? What did they do? What did the Jews do? Those hostile Jews said, well, maybe it's not him. It must be somebody just like him. They tried to sort of explain away the miracle. Uh, um, maybe, uh, maybe he wasn't born blind, so they hauled the, the parents in. Is this your son who you say was born blind? Implying he wasn't really born blind. The whole thing was a ploy and fabrication. They likely would have done the same thing with Lazarus. Is this Lazarus whom you say was dead? Really? Was he really dead? Or was this whole thing a ploy? Maybe this is not Lazarus, but it's one who looks a lot like Lazarus. They would come up with any way that they could to explain away this miracle. They might even suggest, look, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are all friends of Jesus. And so... They fabricated this whole death of Lazarus and they put him in the tomb and they left him there for a couple of days, gave him some food and water on the inside, which was all gone by the time we got there. And then the Jews came out to, to mourn with Mary and Martha and they went, we went outside the village and lo and behold, Jesus just so happens to show up four days afterwards. And so we all went to the tomb, we rolled away the stone and he comes out and presents himself a lot. The whole thing was a, a, a well-done magic trick, a well-done fabrication, a ploy just to deceive the Jews into believing upon him. Listen, you can counterfeit the posture of a dead body with some good faking, but you cannot counterfeit the smell of a dead body with no amount of faking. Those Jews would roll away that stone and go, <coughs> I was there that day, and the smell that came out of that sepulcher was unmistakable. It was the decomposition of a corpse. You can't counterfeit the smell of a dead body. That's what I think Jesus was going after. And by the way, God always uses people to accomplish his means. He could do it without us. He could have rolled away the stone without them. But that's not how God chooses to work. God chooses to work through us. And that's what he did here. Much like when he told the people to fill the water pots or the, the, the washing pots with water and turning water into wine. He could have fabricated wine out of thin air, put it in bottles, put it in wineskins, put it in jars, put it in anything he wanted to. But he chose to use people to accomplish his, his end. And that's what God does. Now look at verse 40. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, something curious about this, his statement, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You can read back through the entire narrative, everything that has come before, and guess what? You're not going to see anywhere where Jesus says that. 
And so we kind of wonder, well, when, when did he say that to her? John doesn't seem to record it. And that there are two possibilities here. This might be something that Jesus said in and around verses 25 and 26 when he told her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It may be something that he had said to her on this previous part of the conversation that John just doesn't record. But he records it now and we are to understand that this was part of their conversation where Jesus said to her, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And when he asked her, do you believe this? It's implied that he said, if you do believe, you'll see the glory of God. That might be the case. Or it might be that this was something that Jesus had taught Mary and Martha and Lazarus on a previous occasion that we just don't have a record of. The general principle being, look, if you want to see the glory of God, believe what I tell you. This is just something that Jesus had said to them on multiple occasions and he is calling to their mind. Either way, this is a gentle rebuke, verse 40. It's a gentle rebuke to Martha for her unbelief. She had said, Lord, by this time he stinketh. He has been dead four days and he stinks. Now that is a statement of, of unbelief. It is veiled unbelief. And we might ask ourselves, what is Martha doing saying this? Is this not the same Martha who in verse 27 said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Is this not the same Martha that last week we saw gave one of the most profound doctrinal statements and confessions of belief in Christ? And now she is protesting his command to remove the stone. What do we learn about that? What, what is Martha doing? Why is this, what is, where is this great faith that Martha had in verse 27? Where is it now? And I think that there's a lesson to be learned here, and it's this. Even the greatest of saints, even the greatest of saints, we have within us, and I don't mean to put myself in the greatest of saints, but all of us have, and even the greatest of saints have, within us the residue of unbelief deep down in our hearts. And this is true of Martha as well. She here for a moment has this great faith that she has. It is eclipsed for a moment temporarily by the circumstances. You understand how this can happen, don't you? Have you ever been in a situation where you see something unfolding and you begin to worry about it and you get anxious over it and you lose sleep and you begin to try and correct the situation and pretty soon you snap out of it and you realize, what in the world am I thinking? Why am I doing this? Why am I worrying about this? Do I not realize what the Lord has said to me? Do I not realize what is going on here? And we do and say things in response to circumstances and situations that in our saner moments we look back on and say, what was going through my head when I said that and when I did that? This is Martha's great faith, and it is for a moment being eclipsed by the circumstances. And, and Jesus is rebuking now, in a gentle way, in verse 40, that unbelief. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? That little phrase, did I not say to you, is a question that, as Christians, we have to remind ourselves of constantly. Has the Lord not said? Do you realize that every fear, and every uncertainty, and every doubt, and every example of unbelief, and every anxious thought, can be traced back to us not remembering what he has already said. We sometimes just have to remind that, remind ourselves of that. Has not the Lord promised this? Did he not say this? And if he said that for the Christian, that is sufficient. Has the Lord, do you fear witnessing and sharing your faith? Has not the Lord said that he will be with you always even to the end of the age? So what do you fear? Do you doubt God's provision? Has not the Lord said that he will provide for you like he does the sparrows? Has he not said and promised you that you are more important and more valuable than even the sparrows which he provides for? Has he not promised you that your father knows your needs before you even ask? Has he not said that? Then why do you doubt his provision? Do you fear death? Has he not promised you that he has the keys of life and of death and of Hades? Has he not promised you that he is the resurrection life? Has he not promised you a glorious life to come? Do you fear uh, with uncertainty that maybe God is not able to save you and overcome all of your sin and forgive you of all of your sin? Has the Lord not said if you believe in him you have everlasting life? 
See, there's no fear and there's no doubt and there's no amount of unbelief that cannot be corrected by simply remembering, has God already said this? And if God has already said this, then the issue is settled. And he said to Mary, did I not say that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, who is it in this miracle who beholds the glory of God? Who is it? Is it everybody? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Now, he's not saying, if you have enough faith, then I will have the power to do this miracle. So you need to believe so that I have enough power because of your belief to perform this miracle. That's not what he's saying. If you believe, the miracle itself is not dependent upon the belief. But listen, there is something that is dependent upon the belief. It's seeing the glory of God in the miracle. Everybody who was here saw the same miracle. Everybody did. But not everybody who was here saw the glory of God. Who saw the glory of God in the miracle? Those who believed saw the glory of God in the miracle. Now you're familiar with this in an everyday way, this concept. An atheist and I can be sitting down and watching the same sunset. And we will see two entirely different things. The atheist sees the light reflecting off of the clouds and it paints colors and there's chemical reactions and all of this stuff that goes in the laws of nature, blah, blah, blah. You know what I see? I see the glory of God in the sunset. The atheist and I can, can both watch a newborn baby be born. And I see the glory of God in knitting together a life in its mother's womb. I see the sovereign hand of God, the providence of God, the wisdom of God, the creativity of God, the glory of God in that event. And the atheist sees reorganized pond scum coming out of another reorganized pond scum, both of which are the results of chance and natural processes. We see the identical thing. One sees the glory of God. One sees absolutely no glory of God in it. Everybody at the tomb saw the same miracle. Those who believed saw the glory of Christ revealed in the miracle. Those who did not believe did not see the glory of Christ revealed in the miracle. And it was as different as this. Through their belief, they saw in the resurrection of Lazarus a man to be worshipped. Others, in their unbelief, saw in the resurrection of Lazarus a man to be stopped. And that's what they did. And they went into Jerusalem and they told the Pharisees and they convened a council and said, we must stop this man at all costs. Some saw the glory of God. Others saw a man that needed to be stopped and opposed. Well, that's His promise. Jesus has promised to her, if you believe, you will see in what I am about to do the glory of God. Now look at verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that You sent me. So they pulled away the stone as Jesus had commanded. They obeyed Him. He lifted up His eyes to heaven, His outward posture thus indicating the direction and affection and attention of His heart. And He began to pray and He begins with thanksgiving. Father, I thank You that You have heard Me. Now He's, he's thanking the Father for hearing Him, indicating that at some point previous to this, He had been praying about this situation. And He knows that the Father hears Him. And there is no uncertainty in the fact that the Father has heard Him because He says later on, I know you always hear me. So he knows that the Father knows his thoughts, knows his will. His will is the same as the Father's. His intention in the death of Lazarus is the same as the Father's intention. But Jesus prayed to the Father at some point about this situation, and he is saying now publicly before all of these people, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you have always heard me. But verse 42, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Why did he pray on this occasion? 
Did he need to pray? Did he need to pray? You'll notice that he's not asking the Father to do something. He doesn't, he doesn't say, Father, will you please in this situation or circumstance do something? This is how we pray. We pray this way. Lord, I have a great idea. And this is it. And if you would just do this, you would see how much better things would work out. For me, for you, for everybody else. That's how we pray. Jesus didn't pray that way. He prayed for the sake of those who were standing around him. And he doesn't ask the Father for anything. He's not asking God to do something that's not his will. He's not asking the Father to change his mind about anything. Jesus is not asking for power to do anything. He's not requesting anything that he lacked. Because he didn't lack anything. He's the resurrection and the life. He gives life to whom He wills. The Father had given Him that power. John chapter 5. Jesus described that. I give, I give life to whomever I will. The Father has committed that into my hands. So Jesus is not asking for power or for something that He lacks. He is asking for the manifestation of the power that He has. That's what He wants to be revealed. He wants to see this done for the glory of God. And God was going to grant that. And He knew the Father was going to grant that. And so He thanked the Father ahead of time. I thank you for what you are about to do. And the reason he prayed and even prayed publicly, there are two reasons. It is for the sake of all of those who are gathered around, verse 42, that they may believe that you sent me. There's two things that Jesus is accomplishing through the prayer. Number one, he is praying so that they might understand that he is not doing this in league with the devil. No demon-possessed man, as they have accused Jesus of being on numerous occasions, no demon-possessed man would lift his eyes toward heaven and pray to the Father of lights, call him Father, and then do this, for the glory of God as a demonstration of his dependence upon the Father. No demon-possessed man would do that. So Jesus is demonstrating before all of his witnesses that what he is doing does not come from Satan. Second, he is doing this in front of all these witnesses and praying out loud so that he might demonstrate his dependence upon the Father. We are never to think that the Son was a renegade deity doing anything in isolation from or independent of the Father. Jesus is making sure that everybody knows that what he is doing, he is doing in complete accord with the will of the Father who sent him. Because he always did the will of the Father and never did anything outside of the Father's will. And he was always dependent, always dependent, on the will of the Father and on the power that the Father given, gave him and on his relationship with the Father. So he is not acting independent from God. He's not just out raising people from the dead because he wants to raise people from the dead. He is doing this in complete accord with the God of heaven, with his Father. And that's why he's praying. Now before we move on to verse 43... I want you to think for a moment of what is on the table at this point, so to speak. Given everything that has happened in John chapter 11, if at this point Jesus does not raise Lazarus from the dead, he would be forever discredited as a fraud and a fake. He would become the laughing stock of the entire nation. He has come to Bethany. He has said, your brother will rise. I am the resurrection and the life. I give life to whom I will. Where's the tomb? Take away the stone. He prays to the Father, thank you for what you are about to do. Now, if he does not raise Lazarus from the dead, he is the laughing stock of the nation. Forever discredited, all of his messianic claims come crumbling down. Word would spread, the guy is a fraud. On the other hand, if he does raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus knows that he would so infuriate the Jews that they would have no other course but to kill him. If he doesn't raise Lazarus, he is a laughing stock. If he does raise Lazarus, he knows that he is going to set into motion a series of events that must and will end with his crucifixion on a Roman cross. So that is what hangs in the balance at the end of verse 42. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now why the, why the loud voice? And I'm not going to scream because it, 
It's painful to all of our ears when you're mic'd up like this. Lazarus, come forth. A loud voice. Why a loud voice? I think a number of different reasons. First of all, Jesus didn't in any way want to look like a conjurer or a wizard or any of those people who do incantations. They were known for their mumblings. There were people who, who practiced the secret arts of divination and occultism who would mumble. Now, he says this loud so that everybody hears exactly what he is saying. Everybody there is going to know this is it's not some secret formula that he spoke. It's not some incantation that he gave. He's, he's not praying something secret that if we can just tap into it, we could all have this power too. He is saying it loud so that everybody would understand that Lazarus is going to come forth by the power of his word and his word alone. He doesn't go into the tomb and kiss Lazarus on the forehead. Did you guys all see the Bible, the big doc, the five-part five miniseries documentary that was on the History Channel? If you shake your hand, you didn't see it. Thank the Lord that he providentially spared you from that train wreck. And don't go out to Walmart and buy it. But the resurrection of Lazarus in that event, in that miniseries, had Jesus walking into the tomb and bending over Lazarus and kissing him on the forehead. And then Lazarus wakes up and Jesus is just as shocked at what he did as, as anybody else standing around at what happened. I mean, it's a total train wreck. Jesus doesn't do that at all. You know what it is? It is the power of his word and his word alone. He speaks. And it is so. That's it. He speaks and it is so. No touching, no rubbing of clay, no magic incantations, no secret formula, no secret prayer, no hocus-pocus, no waving of the arms. Lazarus, come forth. And some people have suggested that if he had not specified Lazarus's names, then all of the tombs would have given up their dead. And it's a good thing he just said Lazarus, because there is power in his word to raise the dead. That's what you and I are to understand. There's power in his word to raise the dead. He simply commands, and it stands fast. And by saying it in a loud voice, he is commanding the attention of anybody who might not have been paying attention for whatever reason. Plugging in those, the stench is horrible. What is he doing? Let's all leave. This is ridiculous. We don't believe in him. Chit-chatting, whatever. He screams it out and everybody snaps too. Everybody would hear this. And it also indicates the authority and the power that his word conveys. He simply says it. And it is so. And there is nothing that can alter it. And when he speaks it and it is so, death must be reversed. The corruption... The decay and the decomposition, all of it is undone, entirely undone. He doesn't come out half decomposed. He doesn't come out ill. He comes out entirely well, completely healed, decomposition and decay, completely undone and reversed, and as alive as he was ever alive. There's something here in this event that is a glimpse of the resurrection which is to come. In Matthew chapter, not Matthew chapter 5, John chapter 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said, don't marvel at this. An hour is coming in which the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will come forth. Some who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, others who did the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There's going to be a resurrection of all men, and you know how that resurrection is going to take place? Jesus is just simply going to say, come forth. The dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of Man, and decomposed and rotted and not even non-existent bodies will materialize and be resurrected out of the dust, out of the sea, out of all over the world. They will get the resurrection body. What we see in John chapter 11 is a glimpse, a glimpse at that future event. Now, it's not, there's some different, some distinct differences between this event and the future resurrection. Namely, Lazarus died again. He re-died. He never, had, he never uh, had his glorified body, so he died again. And second, this is just one man. The future event will be a multitude of men. And I don't know if he's going to specifically name each of us really quick when that happens. Uh, I would suspect that we're just simply going to hear him say, come forth. And all of the dead will be raised. And if you are alive, when that happens, you will, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, you will, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at that last trumpet, in that voice, you will be changed from mortal into immortal, from 
this body of death into a body of life. You will be instantly transformed. And if you die before then, then when He comes back, you will see your body come forth and you will be reunited with that. Now I have a hard time deciding which one of those do I want. Do I want to just be walking around doing my thing and instantly be transformed and taken to be with the Lord in a glorified body? Is that what I want? Or do I want to go through the dying process and die and go to heaven and see Him and hang out for a while and then come back with Him when He comes and see my body come up out of the grave and be reunited with my body? Which one of those do I prefer? And I, I'm not sure. One of, some days it's this and some days it's that. I wish that I could kind of take it all in. But I can't. Because I have to, as one, you're either dead or you're alive when the Lord comes back. But that's the promise that we have. And that is what Jesus is going to do in that future resurrection. He is going to resurrect every person who has believed in Him and give them newness of life. So verse 43, Jesus commands him, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died, the very same one, in case you're confused, the man who had died, came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now some people see here a miracle within a miracle. They say he was bound, his feet bound together, his hands bound together, and so Lazarus could not have walked out of the tomb. So they see here a miracle within the miracle and suggest that when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, not only was he raised to life, but he hovered or levitated out of the tomb, as it were, and came out, and then said to them, unbind him. I don't see anything in the text that suggests that he had to levitate or hover out of the tomb. Uh, just because he was bound on his hands and his foot does not, does not mean that his hands and his feet were bound together. Likely his body was wrapped in grave clothes and he was able just to stumble up out of the tomb and to present himself alive. I want you for a moment just to pause and think about that scene. Pause and think about the scene for just a second. Let this unfold in your mind. You're standing next to the tomb. And are you believing that anything significant is going to happen at this point? I don't know if anybody here believed that anything significant was going to happen at this point. There's no record that anybody understood what was about to happen. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And if you're an unbeliever, you've got to be thinking to yourself, what is he, nuts? Is he crazy? What is he doing? And then out stumbles a man in grave clothes. What do you say? What do you say, wow? Wow. This isn't even seen appropriate, does it? Just thanks. Uh, how did you do that? I mean, words just don't even describe a reaction. I can I can imagine people standing there watching this all unfold, who would just flee the scene. Can you picture that? Running away. I think that just the just the the, the event itself would be enough to make people stand around with their teeth on the ground and their eyes aghast unable to say or do anything. Which is why Jesus would say, unbind him. Oh, yeah, yeah, unbind him. Yeah, what was I thinking? I mean, you wouldn't even be thinking about that. You would be just trying to process what you had just seen. Is this a dream? Do I pinch myself? Did I hear what I thought I heard? Did I see what I thought I saw? Am I? Is this really happening? How long would it take you to process that? This, this is not something you see happen every day. The magnitude and the marvel of this event is, is astronomical. He has not just given life. He has given life and reversed the decaying process. And now out from the tomb stumbles Lazarus. And he's all wrapped up like a Christmas present. Uh, unbind him. And I think that there's a reason why Jesus employs them in unbinding Lazarus. They would be unwrapping him and see, it's him. It's, it's actually Lazarus. When they pulled the face cloths off of his face, it's him. It's not another. It's actually Lazarus. He is alive. 
and they would still smell the decaying flesh. They would still smell the sepulcher, still smell the grave clothes. You could smell all of that. So these are all witnesses who have smelled with their own noses the decaying flesh, heard with their own ears the Son of God command Lazarus to come forth, and now they are touching with their very hands this one whom they know is dead. They are witnesses to this miracle. They know it. They have smelt it. They have seen it. They have heard it. And now they have handled life, which was once dead. These are tactile witnesses. So they do unbind him, and they let him go. And let me give you two, two lessons that you and I can learn, or two summaries of this miracle before we leave. First, one of the things that we learn from this miracle is that, and, and I think that this miracle is, let me, let me start that sentence again, because I started three times and didn't quite finish any of them. Let me start it again. Here we go. We see in this miracle something similar to our salvation. A lot of people look at the resurrection of Lazarus and they say how similar that is to what God does in his monergistic work of saving his people. And I think that there is a legitimate observation in that. John, in John chapter 3, said that this, this work of God in regenerating sinners is God's work. It's not us. It's not our will. It's not our doing. It's not our decision. It's not our ability. Time and time again in John, we have seen that this act of salvation is God's monergistic, mono meaning one, uh, gistic from uh, energy in the Greek or Latin. One energy or one work. It is one person who is at work in salvation. It's not the sinner cooperating with God in salvation. So we see the same thing in the resurrection of Lazarus. And I think the resurrection of Lazarus is a great illustration of exactly the type of salvation that John has described for 10 and now 11 chapters. The resur- in the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Now answer this question. Did Lazarus, who was dead, have the ability to climb out of the tomb? He didn't, did he? Why didn't Lazarus have the ability to climb out of the tomb? Because he's dead. Dead people don't climb out of tombs. Have you noticed this? They didn't have the ability to obey the command, but the command was this, Lazarus, come forth. And here's what happened. That command, Lazarus, come forth, was not just a command that Lazarus had to obey. It was also a command that in itself gave life to Lazarus. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, He gave to Lazarus the ability to obey that command. In salvation, it is the exact same thing that happens. How is it that a sinner is saved? God commands the sinner, repent and believe. But we're dead sinners. I can't repent of my sin. I can't change my stripes. I can't alter my course. I can't do anything pleasing to God. I cannot honor Him. I can't quit sinning. I am a slave to my lusts. I am a slave to my sins. I am unable to obey the command, repent and to believe. But to those who are his sheep, whom God foreknew, whom he has guaranteed will hear his voice, the command to repent and to believe brings with it not just the command to be obeyed, but the power to obey it. And that is why Scripture says that our belief is a gift and our repentance is a gift, and it is entirely of him. Because when he says repent and to believe, the sheep hear his voice and they come to him. And guess what? We repent and we believe. But that's God's gift to us. Because though the command goes forth to all men, repent and believe the gospel, Not all men hear it, and not all men respond. All men are dead. Why is it that some respond and some don't? Because the command to repent and to believe is like the command, Lazarus, come forth. It was the command to be obeyed, but with that command to be obeyed came the power to obey it. And God gives to his sheep the ability and the power to repent and to believe the gospel. It is God's monergistic, his individual, his sovereign, and his gracious work that raised Lazarus from the dead, that commanded Lazarus to do what Lazarus could not do, but that command came with the life that was necessary for Lazarus to obey the command. The command to repent and to believe comes to God's sheep 
with the same power to obey the command that is given. There's a second thing that you and I ought to notice here, lesson to be learned. And that is, we ought to remember that this same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, listen Christian, he is going to someday raise your mortal body as well. That's what we are to glean from this. We are to see in the resurrection of Lazarus, our Savior who is the resurrection and the life. It's the same Savior, the same power, the same energy, the same word, the same command that someday is going to be uttered and, and, and exerted forth into all men who rise from the dead. Now I ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that's the case? Now you may well be wondering, what did Lazarus see during his four days in heaven? Did he write a book? Did he parlay this into a fortune? We'll talk a little bit about that next week when we also look at the response of the religious leaders to this miracle. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful to you for the confidence and hope that you give to us in Christ. It is your glory that is on display in the pages of Scripture and in every miracle that your Son did. We thank you that his promise to us is that he is the resurrection and the life, and we have confidence and believe with all of our hearts that one day we will hear him give the command to us, and we will rise too. What a blessed God you are, a gracious and kind God, and we are a grateful people. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for providing for us life beyond the grave. May you steal these things in our hearts and give us an admiration and a love for Christ. We look forward to the day when we will stand in our very flesh and behold our God. Take a stand upon this earth, as Job said, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.